Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. Welcome to episode 54 of the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you for listening and I hope this conversation inspires you to take deliberate action in your life. The best way to keep up to date with my regular book giveaways, what I'm working on and what I'm currently loving is by subscribing to my weekly newsletter. Join now via the link in the show notes. A heads up that this is an adult conversation that talks about adult themes. Recently, I had a look at the demographic of people listening to this podcast and 80% of listeners are women from the ages of 35 to 55. So this got me thinking about the topics that are relevant to this stage of life and instantly menopause popped into my mind. Menopause, what is the first thing you think of when you hear that word? Before reading today's guest, Ali Daddo's book, Queen Menopause, Finding Your Majesty in the Mayhem, my knowledge about menopause was pretty non-existent. And I have learned so much from chatting with Ali and reading her raw and real memoir slash menopause survival guide. I now feel equipped with a whole new level of understanding. And it's clear that menopause doesn't just affect women. It affects our work lives, our home lives, and as you will learn from this conversation, our sex lives too. So let's jump into today's show. In this episode, I have the joy of chatting with Ali Datto. Ali began working as a model at the age of 16 and has graced the covers of the ever-popular Dolly magazine. Since then, Ali and her husband Cameron raised their three children in LA before returning to be closer to family in 2016. Ali is an early education teacher and is deeply passionate about supporting women to navigate the beauty and pain of menopause. In this conversation, we discuss the three stages of menopause, how menopause can impact our relationships, why therapy can be a game changer, and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ali Datto. Ali, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thanks for having me, Meg. Today we're going to be talking about your beautiful book, Queen Menopause, Finding Majesty in the Mayhem. So what inspired you to share so openly about your story? Well, it was really... Just my experience of, of feeling so alone in my menopause and feeling like why had no one ever, ever mentioned what menopause could be. And I, I, had, I had written articles in the past and I had always loved the art of writing and I always thought that I, I, would, I would write a book one day never in a million years was it going to be about menopause. It was going to be like a historical fiction. Um, <laughs> you know, in, instead it's, it's ended up being a, a high, a high nonfiction drama filled book of <laughs> hot flushes and weight gain. But, um, yeah, look, I just really wanted to get it on paper and write it. And it was somewhat cathartic at the same time, but it was really more about not being able to find a book for me that I related to menopause wise, like there's a lot of great books out there, but they're very medical. And I was looking for a story, something that made me feel normal, that made me feel like, oh my gosh, right. That makes so much sense. I have that too. So I was like, I'll write my story down and I'll write it as sort of raw and as open as I possibly can, because that's kind of how I like to write anyway and um, see where we go from there. So I didn't know if anyone would relate or if anyone was going to buy it. (laughs) 
Oh, I'm sure so many people have related to your story. And I'm sure you've heard lots of stories from other people since writing the book. It's been nothing short of miraculous, honestly. The, the messages that I've gotten on Instagram, the women that have come up to me at the talks, it's just been so, so beautiful. And, you know, it's, it's really struck a chord in a place where women have felt unheard and unseen and not listened to and, and also a place that women really, really want to talk about this. Um, you know, like we were saying earlier before this chat, that menopause has been such a taboo subject. It's been held in so much secrecy and shame. And yet my experience of just going, here's my story, what's your story? And it's flooded the gates with stories. It's just been amazing of women just wanting to tell and wanting to share and the highs and the lows and the pain and the struggles and and it continues to be that. So I'm just so honoured that, that, that women have wanted to share the way they've shared. And for me as a reader, it was quite interesting because I went into it a little bit apprehensive because I'm not at that stage yet. And I was thinking, am I going to get something out of it? But I was highly recommended. You've got to read it. You've got to read it. And it's amazing how much I've taken out of it. And also there's something that I completely didn't expect that surprised me. It's made me a much more present mother. Because as you go through your journey, it reminds me that every season passes. There's all these different seasons. There will come a day when they won't be jumping in bed in the morning or giving me thousands of pieces of paper to put on the fridge. And so it's been a really beautiful book for me to read. And also it feels like I've got a behind the scenes of what it's really like to go through menopause kind of like before I had a baby, you don't really know until you're on the other side. So I feel like I've already got a glimpse, which is so empowering. Yeah. You know, some people have said, oh, look, I won't get it for my daughter or whatever. She's only 30 or 35. But I'm like, no, actually, that's the women that I really, really want to read it. Because once you're in it, you know, you you sort of, you stumbled into perimenopause and it certainly helps that those women too, though, to capture that audience before you get to perimenopause. So yeah, exactly. You've got a bit of a roadmap. You've got a bit of an example. You've got a bit of self-help in there. You've got some ideas about, you know, it's not this big boogeyman waiting out to, you know, steal your life away from you. And then the other part of it is that, you know, being able to tell women, yeah, you're going to go through it, but you are coming out the other side. This isn't forever. And also women go through it without barely a glitch sometimes. You know, I've got Rhonda Birchmore's story in there, which I just love. She was at first sort of saying, oh, look, my story's really boring. You know, I just had a couple of hot flushes and that was it. I'm like, oh my God, I need your story so bad in this book because that's the other side that, you know, 25%, 30% of women have barely a symptom. So we need to hear that information as well. So, you know, it's something that, that may or may not be challenging. Who knows? But having that prep work is just, so it's so important for women. Oh, I feel so lucky. Just the other night, I had a really hot night and I was really sweaty and I was thinking, oh, okay, it's starting, it's starting. <laughs> and then I was chatting with my husband and we realized that we just still had the winter doona on, the really thick one. So it's all good, but it's nice to know that it's in my mind now instead of feeling like what's wrong with me, there's something wrong with me and just knowing that there's different transitions in life. And reading your story, it was really interesting to know your story before menopause, before, before this chapter in your life. So I'd love to go back to your earlier years and your modeling and how that all started for you as a young teenager. I'm a youngest of three sisters and my middle sister actually did a little bit of modeling, like very, very small amount. And everyone thought she was going to be 
the, the mo- she was the pretty one in the family. I was like this weird, gawky teenager with this big gap between my teeth. I had nuts hair, like I still do. But yeah, so she was she was the model of the family, and and I I just happened to be at this party one time, and there was like a friend of a friend who was doing work experience at Dolly Magazine. <laughs> like it wasn't even a permanent job, and she said. I think you could you could be in Dolly magazine and I was like what me I'd never heard that before never heard that I could be a model and um she actually said I'm going to I'm I can organize a meeting with a, a modeling agency and I was like okay and it happened to be called Cameron's um yeah I walked in that that day I was 16 I was in year 11 and they they said you know bring a photograph with you so I brought in my photograph from my year 10 formal and they said, okay, we're going to send you out on a Grace Brothers go see, as they called them back in the day. And I took my one little photo with me, went to see this guy. I got booked for that job and sort of the agency was like, whoa, okay. So he was very kind. Um, Gary Sheridan, his name is, he's still in the advertising industry. And yeah, gave me that first leg up and that was it. It just sort of took off from there. Not straight away, amazing, amazing. Like I sort of did my hard yards for a little bit, but it very quickly I was able to pick up work specifically in Dolly magazine. And it's so interesting to look back now on that young girl that took up this adventure of modeling and all that comes with it. How do you think it shaped you now? It's It's been a blessing and a curse in some ways. Um, I feel like um, I'm beginning to leave the curse behind, thank heavens. You know, it always surprises people when I say I was actually a really insecure teenager um, going into modeling and modeling actually made me more insecure about how I looked and who I was. Uh, It was sort of more who I was. I wasn't sort of too concerned about how I looked in a lot of ways, but was a challenge more so about being liked for who I was rather than what I looked like. That's what became very solidified in my psyche about it doesn't really matter what I have to say. No one really wants to listen to me. Um, I don't have anything to offer other than being a pretty face. And I was judged, I felt like a lot more harshly physically than most sort of people because I was out there on the covers of magazines. And um, I always say this story and people are like, no. And I'm like, it's true. But there were gangs of girls that would uh, catcall in a nasty way from across the street telling me I wasn't all that. And actually I was really ugly. And, and that was as a young struggling teenager with low self-esteem was really hard to deal with. But always I'm so grateful that I didn't have modeling in this day and age with social media, because I think that would have just put up a whole other level that I, I don't know if I would have been able to handle. <laughs> I actually can't imagine because I take myself back to year 11 and you do feel so awkward around so many different things. You're growing into your body. You're trying to figure out who you are, where you fit in. Yeah. And that was a time before social media. But then to have your face on the front of Dolly magazine and then other girls to look to that, it would be really challenging to navigate, but also exciting because you're getting these wonderful opportunities. That's right. That's right. It was very lucrative. Um, I was able to travel to some amazing places. I would. I don't know if I would have met my husband if I if I wasn't modeling. You know, he wouldn't have seen a photograph of me and made a comment to a good friend of mine. So benefits. Certainly, I I had to grow up really, really quick, and I think that's a lot of you know it's why it's why Cam and I married so young, which was ridiculous. But you know, married at twenty two, and he was 
26. But I'd sort of done so much already. I'd, I'd lived in Japan. I'd lived in London. I'd, I'd traveled through Europe. And so by the age of, yeah, the ripe old age of 21, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm ready for to get married. It's like, not. <laughs> yeah, I'd had a bit of good life experience, but not li- not nearly as much as I thought I needed, of course. <laughs> well, it was beautiful in your story, your transition to motherhood and how you were ready to leave that modelling chapter behind. Yeah, I really was. I, I mean, that's all I'd ever wanted to be growing up was a mum and a and a preschool teacher. That was my two things. So the motherhood journey was was something that I could not wait to start. And it's been everything and more that I ever wanted and and hoped for and expected. And it was just so wonderful. Yeah, just letting go of that idea of it it no longer mattered, you know, keeping you know, my skin good or keeping the weight off or whatever it was. I was, I loved my pregnant shape. I just thought it was so much fun to be, to be pregnant. And it was just, uh, it was a fabulous turning point. And of course, you know, as old children are, they don't give a crap about what you look like. They just want to know if you're there to, you know, give them what they need and love them up. And so it was, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Still is. Yes. And I love in your book how you talk about the different phases of parenthood and how going from that intense full-time role to that more part-time role as they get older and the pain that comes with that. Yeah, that was unexpected actually. I really wasn't ready for that. I had spent so much time with my kids and it had been such a full, full, full full-time job that I took so seriously. And I was really fortunate to be a stay-at-home mum. And I know not every mum gets that opportunity. Um, and I had, you know, a husband that traveled so much. So I was often on my own with the three kids. The bond was incredibly strong. And then when that shift, and it really happened more with my son, my, my eldest girl, she's, she and I still remain so close. Um, but certainly with my son, when that shift took place where he needed to step back from mum and, you know, make his own way and not do the big embraceful hugs anymore. And, you know, turn the, turn the cheek when I went to kiss and sort of scrunch, scrunch up his face. I was like, Oh God, Oh no, it's here. And I, I actually had watched a girlfriend of mine who had an older son talk about it as well, but she kept on saying, which was really helpful. She goes, he's come back. He's come back to me. It's all good. Now he hugs me again. And, you know, so I I would hang on to that a little bit. And sure enough, he's now 22 and it's nice. We're we're talking and hugging again. So it's good. (laughs) Well, I think of you when our sons are constantly looking at me and saying how much they love me. And if I happen to wash my hair or something like, oh, mom, you look so pretty. I'm just everything in their world at the moment, just thinking, I'm just going to lap this up because it is not forever. Oh, absolutely. Lap up every second. (laughs) Write it all down if you can even like, oh, remember when he said this, you know? Yeah. All those, all those hard times just sort of, they all just pale in comparison to how lovely the good times are. And that's a beautiful thing about our memory is that we remember those happy times. We forget the real grind of the day to day. Yep. So true. So true. So when did you first start to think about menopause and start to sort of join the dots that it was something that you were experiencing? I had sort of, my cycle had begun to change when we were still living in America and I was about 45, 46. And I remember that was really odd because I'd always been super regular. And then I started having 
really heavy periods and then really light periods and then periods every two weeks. And that was sort of quite a few months of that. And that was all leading up to the move to Australia. So once we moved here, which was, as I mentioned in the book, was singularly the most emotionally and physically exhausting thing I have ever done in my life. And then whether that skyrocketed my symptoms quicker or more so, I think it did. You know, I'm pretty sure it did because I knew how sort of unwell I was anyway. I was, my adrenals were taxed like crazy. So that's when the hot, those crazy hot flushes started kicking in. The sleeplessness at night, the anxiety at night, the aches in my in my bones, in my joints. So, and then feeling like I was pregnant at one point. I remember I was like, am I pregnant? Like <laughs> my breasts got really sore and tender and I was like dizzy and I'm like, what on earth is going on? So once I started sort of, yeah, looking into it, I was like, gosh, I have every, not every single symptom, but I have a lot of symptoms going on here. So that's when the that's when I started making bookings to see doctors and naturopaths and yeah, started getting the help I needed. It's interesting that you say that because I've been talking to a lot of people in the preparation for this interview about menopause and their story. And it's amazing how many women say, I thought I was pregnant. I had all these feelings. And I was thinking, no, I'm surely I'm not pregnant. But that was that first sort of tension point of maybe I am pregnant or what's going on here? Yeah, I did ended up doing two pregnancy tests because it was like, am I going to be a mother <laughs> at 46? <laughs> like what? Wow. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny how it mimics it. It's crazy. It's like, wow, this is a really familiar feeling to me, but this is, how is this possible? So yeah, it does not, not surprise me that, that many women have said that to you. So when it comes to hot flushes, what is it like? So for someone like me that's never been through it or maybe for a male listening or someone who hasn't got to that point, can you explain what it's really like? It's almost really difficult to explain because it's when you when you think of a hot flush, you go, oh, so you just feel hot. No, it's not that. <laughs> <laughs> it's that and then there's a whole other lot that goes on too. So you feel hot but it's like this volcanic feeling that like it rises up into your head and it's also what seems to happen with it is like this shot of adrenaline and that's what's why it's so hard at night where sometimes it's almost like what's going to happen first um is like this feeling of like adrenaline happens and then this ridiculous amount of internal combustion heat comes with it or right after it or sometimes first or whichever, you know, the chicken or the egg, but it's like no other, I'd never ever had anything close to what a hot flush felt like before until I was actually having the proper ones. <laughs> and it's, you know, I know it's, it's really debilitating for, for, for a lot of women. Um, I, I mean, I can't even imagine, I remember talking to a doctor who, a surgeon, who was in full scrubs with gloves, hat, you name it, everything on, and she's getting them as she's in surgery. I was like, holy cow, I can't even imagine what that's like. It's sort of the one common cause that women find really challenging, particularly in the workforce, because if you're in a business meeting, if you're talking one-on-one, if you're, it's really, really difficult to stay present with what you're actually going through. As the volcanoes erupting within your body, trying to like concentrate on that number or that conversation. Yeah. 
And you can tell, you can really tell when women are in it because the face is red. It's like beads of sweat and it's like you're trying to sort of breathe through it or you've got, you know, your fan or whatever going on. And oh yeah, it's, it's a challenge. And it's really interesting to understand that it's not the feeling of when you're hot on a hot day. It's more an internal sense of heat. Yes, exactly. And that they sort of haven't pinpointed it medically exactly why our body does that. It's something that trips in the brain, I've heard. You know, something's cooling down so the body goes to heat us up again. But I don't know the the uh, scientific reason behind it. I just I just know what it feels like. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned the anxiety in the evening. Can you tell us what that's like? I'm hoping listeners will listen to this and think, oh, that sounds familiar and maybe normalize the experience. Yeah, it did seem to grab me more at night, I guess, because I, I wasn't sort of doing other things. You know, I wasn't sort of picking up kids from school or making dinner or whatever it was, but sort of in the quiet of, of nighttime lying in bed, just the racing of my mind and where it was taking me to with thinking of things that I hadn't thought of in 25 years, concerns about my children that were so ridiculous. Like it was, I'd say in the book, and it was true that I was having, <laughs> I was having all these panicked thoughts about my children being eaten by a crocodile. Like, and I live in Sydney and I'm like, why am I thinking that? Like it had these visuals of like them being taken down by crocodiles. I was like, okay, well, that's not actually going to happen unless they maybe go to the Northern Territory. But, you know, just random, random, crazy, anxious, anxious thoughts. Of course, the world was full of anxiety and my marriage was full of anxiety and my parents and I could make anxiety out of anything. It was just, it was constant in, in, in the nighttime, particularly. And so how did you go with sleeping during the peak of things? I really wasn't sleeping. Um, it was just snatches of napping here and there at night. And that, that unfortunately, you know, it doesn't matter if you're dealing with menopause or not, as you know, as a, as a mom, it is the hardest thing to not sleep because everything becomes so hard to cope with when you're functioning on two hours of, of broken sleep, if you get that. So that by far you know, and I'm still trying to get my sleep schedule back, you know, I'm 52 now and I'm postmenopausal. It's, it's still a process to get my sleep back to sort of an eight hour solid sleep. That was one thing that I was definitely working with a lot naturopathically was how to get me to sleep because I would just cry at night because I would wake up and I, once I woke up, I was wide awake and could not get back to sleep. And I would lie there and lie there and lie there and lie there. The mornings were just horrendous trying to cope with everything else that I was feeling anyway. So it was just awful. <laughs> <laughs> there seems like a lot of similarities to that newborn stage in a sense of fluctuating in hormones, bodies doing things that you don't recognize. You can't get solid amounts of sleep. You're just taking sleep wherever you can. Yep. You're emotional. Yeah, You're emotional. You're wondering what's happening. And I'm curious to know about how it impacted your relationships. Look, it was very, very difficult with our marriage for sure, because I was, I, I was choosing to sleep in a different bedroom to try and give myself the hope that I might be able to sleep you know, if I was in a separate bed, that was sort of challenging. I, I didn't want to be touched. I didn't want to hug. I was too hot. I was 
anxious. I was sad. I was depressed. Um, I didn't know how to explain what I was feeling, even though I was writing a lot of it down for the book and, and just in my journal in general. I just didn't feel like I could say it to Cam a lot of the time because it was so, a lot of it felt so dark that I thought, I can't say this out loud. This just is going to sound like crazy, like I need to be institutionalized or something. It was really, really challenging. And because I didn't know what was going on, certainly he didn't know what was going on. Um, but as, as I continued through writing and the book and talking to other women, and I was like, oh, okay. So I'd give him little bits of information and, and then he would sort of talk to other husbands whose wives had gone through it and that, and he was like then finding common ground with them going, okay, it's not just us that's struggling as well. So yeah, we finally sort of got on the same page of him understanding how actually challenged it is and, and, and the challenge that it does cause in relationship, you know, as far as any physical intimacy, that certainly went out the door as well. That was nothing I could even remotely think about. And as I say, you know, Cam's love language is, is physical touch. So it was, it was hard for him to, to have a wife that was seemingly very suddenly quite a different person. And so what really helped you bridge that gap and get on the same page? It was the more I learned about menopause and the more I learned that oh, this is what is quite normal to, to lose your libido, to feel like you don't want any intimacy. So once I was able to talk, have proper conversations, firstly, we did one thing. We did go to a therapist um, to talk, uh, which we had done throughout our marriage multiple times. And then being able to then just talk to him about, it wasn't about him. It wasn't that I'd fallen out of love with him. It wasn't that I was less attracted to him. It was something that my body was going through and that it was hard for me to not be in an intimate relationship with him as well, but that's just not where my body wanted to go. So it then became about the two of us on the same team and menopause was something we could both look at from an outside perspective going, okay, menopause is there. You and I are together. Let's see how we can deal with this menopause so we can have the physical intimacy that he really wants, but is also feels okay for me too. So, you know, he was just happy with handholding and hugs on the couch too, which I was like, oh, okay, I can do that. I can get there. <laughs> you know, so we did, we just made sure we started doing a lot more of that. So that, that really helped build us back up again. And that highlights the importance of creating spaces to have these conversations because it can be hard to have these conversations when we're grappling to make sense of it anyway. And then inviting a therapist into the mix can be really helpful for people regardless if it's menopause or anything else that pops up in our relationships. Absolutely. We are huge fans of therapy. We go back to a lot of what we learned through therapy. We did therapy singularly. We did it um, as a couple as well. And I recommend it, you know, with the right therapist, I think it's one of the best things you can do for your mental health. And having that space to have really important conversations. And I love how you've identified that by having those conversations, it was something that you were facing together. It wasn't you versus him. It was together. We're in this new transition, this new season of our relationship and also of our family. How did it impact your parenting? I needed to have conversations with the kids to make sure 
they knew I was okay. They could see I was definitely going through a lot. And that was the one thing that I made sure that they knew it didn't have anything to do with them, that they were absolutely fine and they had not done anything to make me sad or upset. It was something that my body was going through and that I was going to be totally fine and that maybe I just needed a bit more time on my own and maybe I wouldn't be as able to come to (laughs) as many parent meetings or school plays or whatever it was that I just might've needed to just take some, a bit more time for myself. And, and they were, they were so great. They were really good. They were like, yeah, mom, you know, you do whatever you need to do and I don't mind and you just get better. And so they were, they were fantastic. And probably my son was a little bit like, I don't want to hear anything about menopause ever again. <laughs> I, I, you know, I said to him, are you going to read the book? Cause there's things in there. And he goes, I'm not reading the book, mom. I will never read that book. I don't want to know. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. You don't have to read anything. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was something that I was made sure that I made sure that I really discussed with them. So they knew what, what was going on as much as I could. And that clear communication really lets everybody know that this is happening. This is a reality in our family unit at the moment, but it's not personal. It's not about you. And I think that's really powerful because there's so many times where things are happening in a family unit or also in a school and we don't articulate it or we don't deal with that elephant in the room. And then young people start to come up with their own narratives around, well, maybe if I was better behaved or if I did something different, then it wouldn't be so bad. And just having that beautiful open communication that this is another season of life, it's a transition and having that understanding because it sets a blueprint for them in their relationships in the future. Yeah, that's exactly right. That was one of the things I remember learning in therapy early on is, you know, just make sure that you communicate with your kids when you're going through something so they don't take it on because that's what little kids, you know, that's what children do in the house. You know, they can't help but feel it deeply, even if they're not aware of it. So it was important for us. So if you could take yourself back to the earlier years when you were starting to experience menopause, and we actually haven't defined the stages of menopause. So let's just quickly do that. Could you take us through the stages of menopause? Yeah. So you've got your perimenopause and that's the one that is mostly for women, the most challenging time, because it can last for many, many years. You know, some women have perimenopause for 10 years, for five, two, it it, it can change. And I just saw your face go, wait, what? (laughs) I know when you hear 10 years, you go, hold on. I thought having kids was hard. (laughs) I know, right? It's like, at least you've got an end time in in the, or at least being pregnant, you know. But yeah, so that's your perimenopause year. So that's when your your estrogen and progesterone, that's when it's all going haywire. Things are dropping and spiking. And that's when you're really, your body's trying to figure out what on earth is going on. So you, and you still have your period. So that's your perimenopause. Menopause specifically is really sort of the 12 months that you're not having a period. So, and that can be hard to define because, you know, you think you might be in menopause, but then you, nine months later, you get your period. That means you were still actually in the perimenopause phase. So menopause is really sort of the technical from the day you finish your last period, that's menopause. Then post-menopause is when you have not had a period for 12 months. That's the the scientific reasoning. And then you're post-menopausal for the rest of your life. (laughs) you're into the good parts. 
the, the visual that's coming into my head is just buckle in, bit of a roller coaster. So going to the perimenopause stage and when you were in that stage, what advice would you give to somebody listening that identifies being in that stage? Yeah, so definitely the first thing is, are there changes in your cycle? And someone pointed this out to me the other day and I was like, that's a really good point because a lot of women are still on the marina and you don't get your period. So that's not a symptom that you can actually track. But I also hear that marina is actually quite good for menopause as well because you're getting low doses of hormones that it actually can push your sort of menopause symptoms later in life. So, but if you're not on anything like that, that's certainly something that is very symptomatic of perimenopause is the changes in your cycle, cause the hot flushes, sleeplessness. There sort of can be your first signals. The brain fog certainly is another one where you're just, you're searching for words. You can't quite remember the name of your firstborn child. Yeah, that sort of thing going on. And and if you are sort of around-ish that age, then get yourself straight away to a really good doctor. And a doctor that A, is going to take you seriously, is going to spend the time with you listening to what you are saying about your body and the concerns that you have, because sometimes it doesn't seem like you're not sick. That's the thing. It's not like I'm sick. So why am I going to the doctor? (laughs) And that's why I think we ignore so many of the symptoms, you know, so I just feel a bit crazier today. I just feel a bit more sad today. You know, that's not a reason to go to the doctor, but you know, having a, a list of your symptoms that you're going through, finding a good doctor, hopefully that's maybe has more of an edge with the hormones and spending time with that doctor and saying, this is what I'm going through. And what really helped me was my doctor, who was a hormone specialist, she just did a full workup of my blood work. So uh, she tested all my cholesterols, my vitamin D levels, zinc, everything. So she could see where I needed more balance. And then I was given a bunch of stuff sort of to boost all of that health wise And that sort of was really good jump off point to sort of then start dealing a little bit further with what was going on. And then I've always done naturopathic care. So I had an amazing naturopathic doctor who would spend like an hour and a half with me going over every mental, physical, emotional, spiritual symptom with me. (laughs) And that really helped as well. And You know, I always hear this when I say that story, but what about HIT? HIT. And 100% HRT is amazing. It's, I am not against HRT. It has been a lifesaver for so many women. And if that's the route that that you want to go on and your doctor says it's good for you, go for it because it's been wonderful for so many women. It sounds like getting the right support in place is really, really important. It's so important. And, And I think really more so it's being listened to and, and going to someone that you trust because it, it's too hard to be, be in that place of feeling like you know something's going on in your body and then you're just dismissed as you're fine or, you know, not to say that antidepressants aren't really useful at the right time, but a lot of women I spoke to just said, all I got was a prescription for antidepressant. That's all I got when there was so much more going on. Yeah, you want to find that right doctor. And and if it's not the first doctor, find the second doctor. And talk to your girlfriends. Like, who do you go to? Who do you trust? You know, finding that that person is, is imperative. 
And when it comes to lifestyle changes, what are some general things that people could be thinking about that's quite helpful during this period? Yeah, look, there's so many things too, and it can just be little changes because this idea of self-care was so foreign to me and it was something I had to learn really quick because I needed it deeply. So it's, it's really about checking in with your body physically you know, what is going on? Do I need some assistance with this feeling or that pain and, and, and actually taking care of yourself, like not just waiting, not just putting it off because it might be something more, not sinister necessarily, but it might be something that could snowball in a, you know, in effect in our later years. The, the way I ate changed, I just became more conscious of what foods made me feel bad, what bloated my stomach, what foods I noted caused more hot flushes. Um, and that was sort of the spicier foods, red wine, I had to cut completely out sugar, which I was so bummed, but sugar made hot flushes worse because I love sugary things. (laughs) Um, so, you know, it's sort of like, it's pretty much all the bad guys anyway, you know, sugar, alcohol, wheat, you know, gluten, all those things that sort of were kind of meant to do in moderation anyway my body really started responding in not a good way or reacting rather in not a good way to, to all of those things. So, yeah, that's why I say menopause caused me to become much healthier, which was such an unexpected benefit because I changed the way I ate and, um, it really helped me and got my body moving again, you know, and that's something that I really needed to do as well. And, and finding the right exercise as well was really important for me. It wasn't about you know, going to just a random hit class taught by a 21 year old, I found doctors like physios that were teaching Pilates that knew about the female body. I have one physio that I I go to all the time and she was uh, specifically works with uh, pelvic floor, which can be as you know, if you've had kids and um, that can start to weaken as we get older. Um, So she works with pelvic floor and and, um, the diastasis split. So she's been a gem. I still see her, you know, so it's taking care of finding what works for you and really, really putting time and effort into those things. That's, that's the things that really started to shift for me and was hugely beneficial. It sounds like this stage of our life is almost an invitation to slow down and take care of ourselves after years and years of putting so much energy into other people and how they're going and how they're functioning to really slow down and take care of ourselves and listen to our body. To wrap up this incredible conversation, Ali, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? I'm up for that. (laughs) Okay. I am inspired by? My children. When life feels hard? I go for a walk. An underrated skill is? Being kind. And I am looking forward to? The rest of my life. Ali, thank you so much for giving us an insight into the world of menopause and really normalizing this really important conversation. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I learned so much from this conversation and I hope it's given you an insight into the world of menopause and what we can all do to help ourselves and the people we love and work with during this time. Ali's book is Queen Menopause, Finding Your Majesty in the Mayhem, and it's available online and in-store now. 
If you loved this episode, please share it with anyone you think would benefit from hearing Ali share her experience with menopause and the lessons she has learned along the way. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 54. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week. 